And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Crude Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Catherine Valenti on the Crude Street Podcast. And welcome, I think welcome back. We may have had you on a long time ago, Kat. But before you say anything, I want to say that starting with the short story, uh, The Future is Blue, and continuing in the past is red, which we want to talk about, Terry Begnut... Okay, say it for me. Abdegnum. <laughs> Whatever. It's, 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 I know it's Old Testament. It was about my favorite character from the last two or three years in any science fiction or fantasy. Thank you so much. She is terrific, and I uh, love her voice. I'm fascinated by all sorts of things about her. And I hope – I not, not that I'm putting any pressure on, but I hope you're not completely done with her. I hope I'm not either she's a she's she's something else you know Mm -hmm. i remember when i was 15 years old peter beagle came to my creative writing class in high school i happened to go to high school in the same town he lived in uh Mm -hmm. in davis and i remember him talking about molly grew in the last Mm -hmm. unicorn and uh, saying that he had no business knowing her that she didn't come from him she just visited him and uh he was not good enough for her and i was like I don't know what this crazy man's talking about. Like you wrote her, like I was 15 years old. I knew nothing about nothing, but I definitely thought I knew everything about everything. And uh, that's kind of how I feel about Tetley. She arrived fully formed and uh, I I am not quite good enough for her, but. (laughs) (laughs) Because I mean, where did it all start? I mean, since we've leapt into this rather than saying hello to start off with. um, (laughs) Hello. Oh, well, um, yes. well, sorry about that, but I just wanted to get the Tedley stuff started. Um, six years ago, where did she come from? Well, she came from you in part, Jonathan. Uh, you solicited a story from me for Drowned Worlds, which was a climate change, sea level, dystopian kind of, not really dystopian, but anthology. And um, I had no idea what I was going to write. I hmm. really didn't. I really was interested in doing it because it's something I hadn't done before, which is my number one favorite thing to write, uh, the thing I have not written before. And uh, I was excited about doing it, but I really didn't have any notions of what I was going to do, except that in your original Prissy, it said just this one line that stuck with me, which is what kind of stories will we be telling after the sea levels rise? And my brain answered it instantly without hesitation. The exact same kind of stories we're telling right now. We are never going to change. Uh, and that was all I had, that I wanted to get that idea in there somehow, that no matter how bad things get, we're still going to be the same kind of people we are now. We're still going to be telling the same kind of stories. And I went to visit my family. Um, oddly enough, a lovely bit of serendipity, where I will be when it comes out. Yeah. I went to my family in Washington and... Um, my my dad's office they all called the blue room and uh he was like you can work in the blue room while you're here and i went in there and i was like i gotta get this story done now i'm like i, I <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm running up against the deadline i gotta get it done and for some reason the first line of that story the my name is tetley abednego and i am uh most hated girl in garbage town like plopped out onto the page and i loved it immediately and I you know pursued that for a couple of hours just not really planning anything and I just that voice just came out that she is nothing like me it's not a confession (laughs) I am the most pessimistic person (laughs) (laughs) she is nothing like me at all and uh it the voice just sort of started coming out so then I had to kind of take a step back and plan the world a little bit and actually do some of the uh detail work but that voice was there 
a hundred percent from from the jump. Because it really is a folk tale of the Anthropocene, isn't it? It's that kind mm-hmm. of folk story, you know, that yeah. almost comes out of. I want to say almost like that those dust bowl kind of stories of the of the thirties. It's kind and of yet a it's tale, this- yeah. It's it's just got some of the tone. Well, actually, did you mention the big rock candy mountain in it at some point? Because I think I do. I think yeah, it's, it's got that kind of tall tale, exaggerated tone. And yet there was something. I was it was interesting because I was thinking this afternoon uh, of how I was visualizing things, and I don't always do that. And when I tried to visualize especially the the longer part we should explain that the future mm-hmm. is blue is really the story that was in drowned worlds and there's a sequel essentially the book contains that and a sequel 10 years later when tedley is like 29 or something yeah so you um, do not need anything but this one volume no, you don't need yes. to go back and get the material there is my, my my question is i was trying to visualize this and i kept visualizing it as an animated film um, huh. Not as a live action film, and for some reason, and I cannot explain this at all. Tetley keeps looking like Dora the Explorer. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, <laughs> sure. of anything, I guess. <laughs> Dora's kind of cool. No, I can totally see the animated thing, though. I mean, God, I'd, I'd rather like as if I were a movie maker, I would rather animate all of that than have to like try to build practical sets or or do mm. half CGI or something like that. Well, also it, it, the the story itself, the you know the, the original story, has that sense of being not necessarily part of the real world in tone. If you know what I mean, it's like here is this story. It's a folk story. It is exaggeration, as, as you know, in it as a, as a matter of course to make points or whatever else. So it's supp- not supposed to be, if you like, prosaically real at all. Because if it was prosaically real, it would be much less pleasant than it is wouldn't oh, it? oh yeah no i mean it like the the sort of core emotional core of all of the anything i ever do with tetley is the juxtaposition between who she is as a person which is someone who just sees the deep beauty in everything mm. and the complete horror of her existence and if you take a step outside her point of view we are in a bad bad place uh-huh. <laughs> bad, bad people doing bad, bad things. And so her point of view is actually what makes her world tolerable uh, yeah. for, for a reader now. And and you're right. Like, it's not, it's not the real world. It's not even necessarily like, I'm going to make air quotes for a podcast. So air quote, uh, uh-huh. realistic as far as like what, you know, the climate change future would be, uh, you know, there would be some dry land left. It is allegorical in that way. But in some sense, how I picture it is that, the real world and our real future is sort of mulch from which this mm. is a very strange flower uh, that comes out of it. And and the core emotion of it, and this is what you were talking about Tetley's worldview is, and this is what makes it so intoxicating to read, I think is hope positivity. I mean, there's this young woman in, as you say, terrible circumstances. And if, if you haven't read the story already, well, get the past is read and read it. But, you know, she's in terrible circumstances. And not being, she's called Death Slut. It's, a, it's, it's rough where she and, is. And she's not treated well. I mean, mm-hmm. and yet she is genuinely, It's whenever I come around to describing it, she is in love with the world in a way that is intrinsically hopeful. I mean, it is a hopeful story above all else, which but, is what makes yeah. it let me let me slightly disagree with that or come at that from a different angle because I, I, I read this, especially in the second part when it becomes much more uh, 
haunting, I guess, and, and touching in a way. I mean, she becomes less of a comic figure and almost a tragic figure. But I, I read this as a story that she's telling herself about a world, which if she weren't telling herself this story would be unbearable. Uh, but I don't see her as completely a Candide figure. And this is what's fascinating me. She's not unaware of the dangers of her world. There's a, there's a certain kind of dystopian fiction, and I was trying to think of earlier examples, uh, where the characters living in a dystopia think they're in a great society. Uh, there's a collection of, it's really a novel, but it's really a group of stories by Robert Silverberg called The World Inside, where people are living in giant arcologies that hold a million people each. And they think they're living the best of all possible worlds because essentially they've been brainwashed into thinking this. In other words, dystopian people who don't know they're in a dystopia. My sense is that Tedley knows exactly where she is and she's finding a way to cope with it through through her uh, storytelling ability. I mean, I think some of it is cope, absolutely. But then there is this other thing, and it's it's almost scary to even look at because our world sucks too. But like, Tetley is hopeful because she has never known anything but this world. True. So if you are the kind of person who, when you are fifteen, is in love with the world, she's just that person, and it's her world. Yeah. And so she loves it because it provides for her and it's beautiful because she sees things beautifully and she's never known uh, the fuckwits world, which is our world uh, and doesn't really care about it. What she cares about is her home. Like all of us do again, we come back to what kind of stories we'll be telling the exact same kind of stories we've always been telling about the value of home, about love, about identity, all of these same stories. And to her, it's completely normal. There is nothing unusual about the way she lives other than that she is being constantly punished by everyone. Uh, but the world she lives in is, is the only world there is. And uh, I think that, I think that as a genre, we're actually kind of, there are, there are these undercurrents with Becky Chambers and Alexander Rowland and a, a few other mm -hmm. writers, like these currents of a kinder science fiction coming up. And I think Tetley is sort of uh, a, a, a harsher part of that tradition um, where she, she does live a very harsh world and, and the past is red takes her in directions that uh, I do not think could be guessed at in the, in the future. Absolutely. As Adulthood always does. Um, but she is genuine when she looks at the world she lives in and says that she couldn't have been born anywhere better and that she's grateful she wasn't born uh, in earlier times. She's being totally genuine. It is not a Candide thing in that she is not a fool. Uh, she just lives in the world that she lives in. And the Candide thing is so funny too, because Ken Liu gave us that amazing blurb. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. It's the candide of our uh, profanity deleted age. And when we got that, I went, oh, my God, it is candide. I had not thought about candide. <laughs> and I love candide. I, I grew up loving it. I used to have the best of all possible worlds, like in my Trapper Keeper, as a quote. Uh, and somehow my brain had just stored that like deep back in the reptile brain and just not informed me that that's what it was <laughs> about. <laughs> uh, so thanks, Ken. But um, but yeah, it's not it's not fully a Candide story. She is much cannier than Candide, and she's much more alone. Uh, but it she has a a, a confrontational level of hope. Well, she's uh, also living, 
Yeah. She's, she's living in a society, and she's not brainwashed into anything she thinks. As a matter of fact, the, the government, what passes for a government in this society is, is, is essentially tribal. I mean, yeah. she's, she's exiled, but it's, it's not as though she's a victim of 1984. One of, the, one, one of the kind of dystopian things that lies in the back of every dystopia now is, yeah. is, is a book that none of us want to see, which is a sequel to 1984. But when you're finishing reading 1984 and you read uh, that uh, Winston Smith loved Big Brother, and that's the end, then you yeah. wonder, okay, what is it going to be like from here on when he really loves Big Brother? My point is that Tetley is not a victim of that kind of brainwashing. She has, yes. has, has chosen a, a way to view the world that uh, that makes it wonderful for her in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think what's fascinating about the, the, the story and about the past is read about Tetley is that I mean, you're talking about this rise in hopeful science fiction, and it's there, but the future is blue does not have any of the coziness about it. This yeah, is kind of stripped away pra- practical hope. This is pragmatic hope rather than kind of like, oh, everything's going to be lovely. I mean, I, I, I liked it very much, but I read the forthcoming Becky Chambers book, which is about mm-hmm. a monk and a robot wandering around having adventures. And it's, it's nice and it's very cozy. But the, you know, the future is blue and the past is red really are, there's something else. They're embracing the world regardless of what it is. The question I'd segue to is, January of 2016, you finished The Future is Blue. Did you think you were done with Tetley and Big Bargains and Garbage Town? Or was there always somewhere in the back of your mind where you thought you'd be back? I, you know, the thing is, I have written novels from short stories before, and I always know right away. And I knew right away that uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to let her go. Uh, I didn't want to let Garbage Town go. That I knew there was more there, but I didn't know if I would get an opportunity. You know, uh, like short stories, they can hit and they can miss, and they can go completely under the radar. And uh, you know, certainly publishers are more interested in novels that come from stories that hit. Like you just have you have no idea what the fate of any one given story is going to be. Um, but I hoped that I would get to do more with her because I do love writing her i love writing mm. her world and and she is she is so unique you know not everything i write is as character driven as as this is and um you know i don't think there's garbage town stories without tetley really yeah. um i think that those are fundamentally different stories that i'm not all that interested in writing um but yeah i knew i knew from that first line <laughs> My first line i'm like oh you jerk <laughs> I guess what I'm thinking though is that, I've been it for five years. <laughs> well, it's like five years, but also like it, it, it sort of changed and twisted in your hand, kind of thing. Because mm. when we started talking about possibly doing something else, it must have been 2018. We started talking about maybe doing something, and I remember being in Seattle in 2019 in July when we thought there was going to be something called Green Light Dying coming into the world, mm. and it then shifted again into what has become the past is red. And we had this conversation and again, to reassure readers, the past is red. Not only is it all of the story you need, but it actually is a full length novella added to the future is blue. There's no kind of. Which is a novel. Yeah. It's not a short, short story either. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that, but how hard was it to find the, the, the part, the story that is the past is red. When did that become apparent to you 
So it, it was very difficult to figure out what I was, what else I was going to do to her. Um, <laughs> and uh, like you talk about the, the title shift. And uh, I think that when it was green, like dying, I was, I, I was considering killing her uh, mm. at the end. I was um, really thinking of a much more introspective and uh, just focused on her experience thing. And I'm, I'm delicately dancing around what happens at the end of the yeah. passages where yeah. kind of close the world open. Um, but that there, there are sort of two big reveals at the end of the past is read. And one came a lot earlier than the other. Um, and so once the character of Mr. Uh, had had sort of come into my head. Uh, I knew it wasn't going to be quite the same story, and I knew she wasn't going to die at the end once that was part of it. Um, and then one, you know, the reason for the title change is is sort of the other reveal. Um, and and once I knew I was I was sort of headed toward that, which very much came from the difference between writing something in 2016 and writing. <laughs> you know like <laughs> there are some thoughts that you have in that span <laughs> that you maybe didn't have before 2016 uh and and so once that once those sort of two turns of the plot uh were things that I had become very attached to like I knew it wasn't going to be quite what I had planned. but it was it was really difficult because you know the future is blue is is kind of a classic bildungsroman like you know coming of age you know there is a certain rhythm to that there I, I i write for middle grade uh as well like there there is a familiar it's kind of like if you're a gamer and you go to play a, an, another rpg when you really like rpgs like there's a certain logic to it there's a certain rhythm you fall into there's you know sets of 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 expectations um and the passage read was never going to be that even if it picked up the second mm. that future is blue left off and it doesn't it's about 10 years mm-hmm. uh then it was still never going to be that because she comes of age at the end of that story. So there has to be another, which actually kind of feeds into a a pet peeve of mine, which is that we are so focused on coming of age stories uh, that we kind of forget to tell stories about the middle part of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we tell stories about death and dying Mm -hmm. and the end of life and what happens to your children and all of that. And we tell stories about coming of age and everything else is just like, and they lived their lives. Uh, you know. <laughs> so, uh, Russian salt, as they say. You know, uh, she's not middle aged. You know, she's twenty nine or thirty uh, by the end of the past is read. But um, you know, when you are living on the Great Pacific garbage patch, I'm not going to assume that life expectancy is like super <laughs> exactly awful. the same. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's well, nobody actually, to run statistics anyway. <laughs> What's well, you tying into that as well? I mean, I assume it's very relevant that from the moment. The Future is Blue was published in mid-2016 because, I mean, it happened fairly quickly after the story was finished, mm. really. A lot happened both in your professional and in your private life as well that mm. must have impacted because, obviously, you had great success with Space Opera not that long after mm-hmm. uh, Future's Blue came out, which was wonderful. And then you also had your first child mm-hmm. and all of that, and you're living on an island and all this. So all of that must have impacted on the writing on in fact, how you approach writing at all now? Yeah, it, it's it is really different. Um, you know, space opera. God, nobody expected that to be anything ever. Uh, even even the the 
publishers themselves we've we've discussed it afterwards and they're like well we kind of just thought it would be this niche thing and uh <laughs> you know it, it is not uh it, it has gone far and wide um and it's different than anything else i've ever written uh and uh, you know i'm working on the sequel now having had the kid and, and everything that comes after it and that that's certainly strange and bracing um Although, although my husband did say, I wonder if this person had a child between the first book and the second book. (laughs) (laughs) I I ended up using a toddler metaphor for first contact. Um, But I, I think that (laughs) uh, it's, it's late night. So I think the major difference um, after having a child in my writing is that I'm tired now. Um, I'm just tired. I'm tired all the time. And so I actually think it's serving me incredibly well in my writing, uh, to, to be self-deprecating for me. I no longer have the energy to just cram everything into a sentence and yeah. just like, fire on a thousand percent at all times for 400 pages. And I think it's actually coming out better. <laughs> when I only have the energy to do that a few times a chapter and then there's like plain language um, <laughs> I, I actually think that I'm doing some of my best work right now because I am tired just just because it's like yeah no I can't, I can't be having with that no, I, I just have to go to the next thing time I can just have a regular sentence that leads into the next part of the story well, there's, something, there's something to be say, said for those great cascades of words that sound <laughs> in the Swinburneian rhythms that you could get in your earlier fiction that were very impressive just on a stylistic level and it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, not much of that shows up in even the story The Future is Blue which dates no, back before true. so, so um, it's, uh, I do think I was kind of shifting even before yeah. um, I had the kid. Um, and, and, and actually, uh, it's funny, when, um, when Space Opera sold the movie rights, obviously everybody you know, wanted to talk to me about what else do you have? Yeah. And one of the things I kept saying was Future is Blue. Like if, if, if Space Opera was what you wanted, like maybe think about this other thing because it had these kind of were written pretty – about a year apart and it, it yeah. does kind of mark a departure where mm. uh mm-hmm. i there there is a sort of lighter voice uh it's more nimble um and and much funnier uh there's more humor in it um and i really enjoy even though they're very different i really enjoy writing in that the refrigerator monologues is kind of in that mm-hmm. um part two um and I, I mean, I'll probably stick with it for a while because I really like it. But even when I sent the story into Jonathan, I, I, I can find it in my email when I said it. I was like, I don't know what this is, but hope you like it. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I've had a couple emails like that, that from you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what this is, was, was that, you know, I had told a story with no unique structure, with mm. uh, just a single narrator, first person, um, and her world is is you know wild and and strange as as science fictional worlds are, but um, the focus is not on the necessarily on the pyrotechnic pyrotechnics of language. Um, there, during the pandemic, there. during the pandemic, you went back and you've done live readings of some of your older books. Yeah, how do you feel now in light of what you've just been saying about what you're writing about? the writing that you experienced when you went back and read that work again? That was such a strange experience. I did. I read all of the orphan's tales, which is about a thousand pages from March to October, 2020 um, on Instagram live. 
And it was weird. I wrote that when I was 22. Um, mm. So I have no memory of it whatsoever, essentially. Like I, I, I told people every night, like, I'm discovering this just along <laughs> with you. I remember virtually nothing that happens in this. Uh, and there were many times where I was like, Oh, cat! You probably, you could probably just have like one less simile uh, in that sentence. But I, I mean, I don't think that things are. I accept that that is the book I wanted to write at the time. Sure. It's everything that I wanted to say and I wanted to write at the time. I did not compromise. Uh, I did not, um, you know, think about the market. It was what I wanted to write, and and all I hope for my whole career. I hope that when I'm ninety, I can say every book I wrote was the book I wanted to write in that moment. Whether it's a perfect book whether it's a deeply flawed book, as long as it is uncompromisingly what I wanted to write, I am happy with that book. And The Orphan's Tales was that. There are flaws in it. Uh, there are things I could have done better, for sure. Uh, but it I was a child. <laughs> Literally a child. <laughs> this book. And the funny thing about it is this book is like completely about pregnancy and childbirth and child-rearing and and you, which And I was fundamentally child-free at that point like i was mm. never gonna have kids so it was a very odd very odd experience and, and and i don't i i mean i'm i'm being self-deprecating it's not that i'm not proud of my previous work i i absolutely am but you know everybody grows and evolves and yeah. changes and um i'm enjoying writing what um i'm doing now and i i i just find it amusing that i think that i am i am turning out more consistent work now that i'm exhausted uh <laughs> and I had all the energy in the world and was like read my energy <laughs> yes you know you, you don't have the, the energy for multitasking or even pretending to it's like i can do this or that or that i, I kind of get it i've lived through some of that yeah I mean, you're, you're you're obviously listening to your own voice in a way that all writers should but i wonder if as part of that you hear from well you mentioned uh maybe before we started, uh, something like Deathless. Do you hear from readers who say, well, I love the orphan books. I, I, I want to hear Deathless or I want to I want to hear uh, Palimpsest again. Uh, do, do you get that kind of pressure to return to an earlier style, an earlier approach? Oh, when the Orphan Sales readings ended, like everybody was asking for their own particular one that they wanted yeah. to hear next. I, I had to explain, like, listen, the reason I did Orphan Sales is there is no audio book of it. And there probably <laughs> never is going to be like other people have rights to the right. other. So like, it's not necessarily as legit for me to do those. And, and people do have their favorites. And I mean, that's the wonderful thing about literature. Like I can read people talking about my work and one will say, God, the orphan Tale is just the most amazing thing I've ever read. And I love it so much. And Ugh, I hated Palimpsest. Or, and like the next thing I read will be like, oh my God, Deathless was just the most amazing thing ever I could do without the Orphan's Tales. Like you're never going to please everybody as long as you please anybody uh, with any one work. Like that's, that's sort of the dream uh, just to have it matter to one person anywhere ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of, of styles changing, sorry, go, you're going to say something. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Speaking of style changing, uh, the past is read is one of two books you're going to have out this year, and both are written in the same period, in the same kind of voice, in some ways. You know, in this, in this recent period, tell us a little bit about "Comfort Me with Apples" and how that came to exist. Well, it's the most difficult book I've ever written to talk about uh, because we don't want to spoil it for anyone. Mm. But um, Come For Me With Apples came from, again, from from Jonathan soliciting things. Uh, I should just solicit things more often. Uh, 
Instagram really well. Uh, and as for a story for tour.com and um, I, uh, I had had this story that I was thinking about before um, I got pregnant and uh, like I, I wrote the first thousand words of that in, in a hotel room in Warsaw um, because I just had this, had this idea from something I had read and uh, I liked what I had come up with. It is intact almost completely from, from that, that hotel room to, to what's in the book. Um, but uh, between sort of the Glastown game coming out at the end of 2017 and uh, you know, everything else that I, that happened, um, you know, divorce, new relationship, pregnancy, the whole thing. Um, I just had to put it aside. Uh, and I, I didn't know if I would ever come back to it. And I have ADHD. So coming back to things is not what I do <laughs> at all. Um, <laughs> although weirdly enough, uh, Jonathan's the patron saint of my life right now. Um, the difference between love and time that I just wrote for you was also something that I had started writing literally three nights before I gave birth and, <laughs> uh, and then came back to it later uh, at, at your behest. So, um, so yeah, so I was like, well, maybe I can, uh, maybe, maybe it's time to go back to, to apples. Maybe, maybe there's, I, maybe I can go back once. And mm-hmm. um, I wrote the whole of the first version of it in three days uh, yeah. and just in a, in a rush of uh, being in a hotel room away from my child uh, as I had had it. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to hotel room for three days, husband, you deal with it. Uh, and I buckled down and didn't move for 16 hours other than my fingers on the keyboard. And uh, it went long and long and long. And I kept looking at the word count going, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble on <laughs> this one. It is so long, but it was what I wanted. It, again, it was what I wanted to write. It was, it was the, yeah. it was actually shorter than what I wanted to write. Like I cut it off because I was like, I cannot literally turn in a novella to tour.com. That's not happening. <laughs> website. Uh, and so uh, I sent it in and, and you said that you thought we could get away with the, the length, which was just like a polite cough short of a novella. <laughs> Um, uh, and then I didn't hear anything for a couple of months. And then um, you guys started talking about doing it as a book instead of uh, doing it on the website. Uh, I seemed to see something really special in it. And I, I was mm. sort of taken aback by that because I, I was not aware that among the options, uh, when you turn in a short story, like the options are reject or accept, not now it's a book. <laughs> I didn't know that was in the, in the drop-down menu. Um, so, I don't think it uh, is. I don't think it is in the drop-down menu. It is, uh, no, I mean, the, the, the backside of this is you write Comfort Me With Apples, which is supposed to be, frankly, a short story, right? I mean, yeah. Tor.com, for those who don't know, know now have a kind of hard upper word limit of 15,000 words, and then even that's not great, right? And so it, yeah. I'm thinking about a short story, and I get – I seem to recall about 17,000 words of short story. It, it and was, I really it like it. And it's this sort of dark, <laughs> it's a sort of dark, gripping kind of step for dishy kind of story, keeping everything vague, uh, whilst also trying to make readers be interested. And I really liked it, but I was also thinking for, see, the position I find myself in is I'm now going in to advocate to Tor why they should, because I like this story and we should buy it. Hmm. Why they should ignore the fact that it's far too fucking long, right? But it's not too too long for the story, which was the, the critical thing. And then, I mean, hats off, Irene Gallo fell in love with it, the associate, associate publisher at Tor. 
And she was the one who said, we could maybe do this as a book. And then said the magic words, could she make it longer? (laughs) And Kat went, funnily enough, I think I had that (laughs) in my remit to make it several thousand words longer. And it became Comfort Me with, with Apples rather than the story that it was. And I have to say as well, it, it, it's a book where when I first saw the cover, and I know when you first saw the cover, we were not 100% convinced, yeah. but it's really grown on me as being something that gives the sort of the uncanny vibe of the story, because yeah, it really I mean, is a strangely uncanny kind of a book. That's that's kind of the, the number one word, I think. I think that's that's the... Okay, now, Jonathan has read this, and I haven't, because NetGalley sometimes <laughs> refuses to recognize they've never heard of me, and want to know, you know, am I going to? So I'll, I'll, I'm so looking forward to it. However, requested on NetGalley for a minute there. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, I, I may get it. I don't know. I, I'm looking forward to it because I'm, I'm now speaking from what appears to be the blurb, um, you know, that's that's on Amazon. That's um, That does sound, sound like there's a bit of the Stepford Wives there. It sounds like there may be a bit of Bluebeard there. I don't want to guess anything that I'm not supposed to guess at this point. But Talking about a story that gets longer and longer, and can you make it longer, and is it the right length for this sort of thing? Given the setting and the characters that are evident solely from uh, from the a- advanced blurbs and so forth, it reminded me of something that um, uh, my friend Peter Straub wrote an introduction to the Stepford Wives a few years ago, a new edition of it. And one of the points he was making was that the Stepford Wives was partly as powerful as it was because it was way shorter than almost anybody else would have done. It was enormously efficient in terms of the storytelling. Mm. So my question is, is a story that grows too long possibly a short novel that's just the right length? I mean, maybe. I I can't imagine making apples any longer than it is. I don't think Mm. I could, I don't think I could keep up everything that's going on and the sort of faint of it uh, Uh much longer for one thing. And, and it's, it is the story. Like it is mm. incredibly lean. Um, yeah. One of the leanest things I've ever written, I think. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's what I have to. It's, it's kind of what has been bothering me a lot about what I think of as efficiency. As a novella, it's bloated as a short story. Well, as a novella, it is a lean, mean fighting machine. Uh, it was <laughs> for, for an innocent reader such as myself, not having seen the short story, and I, I, I'm, I, I'm anticipating looking at a book where I'm thinking. Thank God this wasn't 400 pages. But I won't be thinking, gee, I wish this were only 40 pages. I mean, no, words, no, I the story determines its own length, whether you like it or not, whether Jonathan, as an editor, likes it or not. Uh, I would quibble. I think sometimes you, you, you can see, but for, for Apples, like the, the contrast between the past is red and Apples is past is red was this new thing that was continuing on from something else and had a different kind of a structure. Right. With Apples is that there was that feeling like it needed that space to breathe in and maybe a bit more. And I look back at it and I can't think where I would sit there and go, recast this and cut that and make it down into this. It was never going to be that. It needs that well, room. And I offered that to you, remember? I said, if you, if, you wanna, if you can find a place to take a couple thousand words off of this, I'm open to that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that was always said, I, don't, I don't know where I could take anything out. Yes. That was, that was the opening thing. And you, know, you sit there going, I'm sure I can find some way to get this down to eight and a half thousand words. We'll be fine. And then yeah. you realize that, well, you can maybe cut 50 or 60 or something. But then you're sort of, you've got to ask yourself what you're achieving by cutting 50 or 60 mm-hmm. words. Are you making one or two lines work better? Or are you just cutting so you can say you've cut? And when it was expanded, it was plain that it had been 
just a little bit too compressed. And so I think what you've got is that thing that is a short novel or a whatever you want to call it. I mean, the thing is, all these terms that we play with, I'd be curious what you think about it, Kat. They are artificial constructs on top of what we're actually getting. Mm, you know, absolutely. it's a story. The fact that we haven't called it a short story or a novella or a novelette or a novel, whatever else, is neither here nor there. They're stories. And this one happens to be this, holding up his hands on, on uh, audio to say about that far apart. Yeah. I mean, do you pay much attention to form in that way when you're dealing with story? Um, I mean, I, I don't in the beginning. My, my writing process always involves writing about the first third of anything without considering length, form, mm-hmm. market, anything like that. It's just the first third is always just plain. And, I, you know, I may go back and edit that first third and everything to make it match up with once I've done the planning. But uh, I find that that kind of open open playground is really important for me to get invested in a, in a project. Um, and so I, I didn't, <laughs> again, I, I was writing a short story. I did think it would come out to short story length. I, I knew exactly the structure. I knew the, I knew what was going to happen at the end. I knew what was going to happen at the beginning, like going into it, which is fairly rare for me. I almost never know what's going to happen at the end, but I knew that end um, early, early on. And I, I thought that I could get, out of it in under 10,000 words. And I could not. Um, <laughs> uh, not, not just because uh, of, of Sophia, the, the main character who I, um, you know, kind of <laughs> nearly killed me to write someone who is deeply fulfilled by being a housewife. But uh, <laughs> I, though I really enjoy writing her and, and, and her world and everything, it, it wasn't even just that. It was that in order, you know, mysteries and thrillers, which is what this is. This is mm. a this is a yeah. murder mystery. Mm. Um, there is again a, a different kind of logic and structure and um, feel to that, uh, and the way it unfolds than there is to science fiction necessarily. And uh, part of that is that the tension of who 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 did this needs to be given time to sort of simmer and mm-hmm. develop. And that tension in the reader needs to develop um, or they won't really care once the reveal comes along. Uh, and so there, there are no extraneous scenes in apples. Like uh, the, again, there's just, I can't even imagine a single scene I would cut. Um, but part of the length is just giving that eeriness, that uncanniness, that tension of, mm. of not knowing how uh, Sophia's world has become so, uh, screwed up and broken um, and, and not not just in the sense you know like emotionally how but like physically how has this happened <laughs> uh, that there are these human bones in her house um, that, like if you bring that down to 10,000 words it's basically just bringing up a mystery and answering it immediately and that doesn't that doesn't work so well for, for the cross genre that this is. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask about the cross genre because what you're describing sounds a lot like a horror story it sounds a lot like a suspense. Well, I mentioned Ariel Levin, for example, who writes in that space. I mean, he's a Hollywood writer, for heaven's sake. And then he decides mm-hmm. to write a kind of science fiction mystery horror thing. Um, and uh, it, 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 the, the, the way you're describing her world sounds like um, an, a well-constructed, uh, but essentially a horror story. It is the closest thing to true horror I have yet written. Okay. That's uh, 
I would not say it is quite all the way there. Uh, it's still sort of, I think, has one foot in fantasy. But uh, it is, it, I mean, I'm a horror fan from nine years old. Like that was my first genre love. I found my stepmother's box of uh, horror paperbacks when I was cleaning the garage when I was nine. Uh, and I plowed through John Saul and Stephen King and Peter Straub mm-hmm. and all these uh, writers, uh, knowing nothing about them at all, except that I just could not wait to get to the back <laughs> of that paperback. And then I would go into the bookstores and I would just look for the black spine. Yeah, exactly. Just like <laughs> all black, like that was mine. Um, I am I am a horror fan from... from the, the embossed so paperback, paperback covers with part of the oh, yeah. cat's eye cut out or something. Black and blue, black and purple, or black right, and red. Yeah. <laughs> and I loved it. I loved it. Uh, and I always kind of wanted to write something like that, but never did, even though I think a lot of my work is dark fantasy. Or There's dark a lot fantasy. of dark stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of darkness in it, but I, I would not, I would say that the only, like, other than short stories, the only other thing that I've written that sort of engages with horror to that extent is Radiance. Um, mm-hmm. And this is, it is murder in the suburbs. Uh, we I have joked with a few friends that like, if your mom hasn't read a book by me, this might That's be the one. one. <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of is sort of Peter Straub, Ira Levin does the Stepford Wives meets the Truman Show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah That's kind of good. what it is. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> if you're into a semi-fantastical version of Straub Levin does that, then this mm. will be your jam. Um, <laughs> it's great. And it's so, so different from the, you know, the past is read that you can barely believe they came from the same person. They're utterly yeah. different voices. It's like nothing else I've written. Um, <laughs> but then that seems well, to be the thing. Right right I like to write the thing I haven't written before. I like to. Except, yeah. Um, but, but I mean, yeah. Oft, often what happens is, well, not often, but occasionally what happens, a writer will develop a voice and that voice carries through everything they do, yeah. even if they're doing different things. This really seems to be a situation where, as the writer, you're almost like an actor taking on a part and performing the part in a different voice. So I was an actress for many. <laughs> and so, you know, whether it's Tetley, whether it's The Past is Red, whether, or, or, and The Past is Red, whether it's Comfort Me With Apples, whether it's Space Hopper, they're all dramatically different. How weird was it in amongst doing, well, certainly, I guess, some work on The Past is Red, some work on Comfort Me With Apples, to be writing what will become Space Oddity as well, I guess. Because most yeah. of them overlap chronologically. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I at one point was writing all three of them at the same time. Um, so I, I, not in the same day, though. That's kind of my thing. I need a sleep before I can work on the next one. So I can work on multiple books in a week, but I find it very difficult, especially when they're in as widely disparate genres as, as mm. this. I find it very, very difficult to uh, work on two different projects in one day. Um, so I tend to split it up, uh, through, through days of the week. And I, I kind of discovered I had that problem when I was, um, <laughs> writing, uh, the first fairyland and deathless at the same time. They're <laughs> <laughs> uh, much the same either, are they? Uh, that like, if I try to, if I'm working on a middle grade book and I try to work on an adult book in the same day, then that adult book will all of a sudden start sounding like a middle grade book. And that is going to get real weird when mm-hmm. there's a second. Uh, and if I am working on an adult book and I try to just, you know, take a lunch break and then go work on the middle grade book, there's some very adult stuff that gets into the middle grade book. So like, I, ha- I have to keep them separated by sleep. Uh, <laughs> but, 
But um, I, I, you know, I mentioned ADHD and, and it, it does help in a certain way because uh, my brain wants to do that anyway. It wants to jump between various different things and like run after one story until it exhausts itself and then pick up another one the next day. So in some ways, uh, my, my neurodivergence um, is, is, is part of what allows me to do that in, uh, in, in lots of different books, more or less at the same time. I have an odd question about um, space opera. Because um, mm-hmm. it's uh, it, it's something that I like a lot of American viewers were kind of dipped in and out of Eurovision, but Eurovision is huge all over Europe. It's, it's huge in the UK. Yeah. Now. That uh, that struck me. That must yeah, be one of your yeah. more successful European books. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 it is. I know. Um, <laughs> yeah. In fact, um, I had a my my UK contract was for another book entirely uh-huh. and they were like uh can we we'll just have space opera instead if that's okay can we have that? <laughs> <laughs> uh and then like german reds sold like three days after it came out and like, right. you know, I, it's it's done very well in europe um I, I'm, I'm personally thrilled that uh it has been out in italian for some time and italy won <laughs> uh, eurovision this year right uh, and and actually it's done well in asia as well uh the korean version has done great um, so yeah, it's, uh, I definitely, um, wrote a Eurovision book intended for an audience that has not ever heard of Eurovision. Um, thank you, Will Farrell, for making that conversation a lot easier, uh, <laughs> in, in the last year. Um, but I do think that Americans are picking up on Eurovision and, uh, I, I, I didn't care ultimately. Didn't care what Americans thought about it. I wanted to write it, uh, and it was this bizarre thing that happened because of Twitter. Like I essentially wrote it on a dare. Uh, like um, I was live tweeting Eurovision in um, 2016 uh, when Australia was robbed, and yep. um, a fan of mine in the Philippines just tweeted at me like, "Oh, ha ha! You should write a fantasy or science fiction Eurovision book." And I typed back, "Ha oh, ha! That that would be cool." And then, like five years later, uh, Nava Wolf DM'd me and said, "I will buy that right now." Sight <laughs> Uh And I was like, "All right." Uh, I mean, I don't have a title. I don't have any ideas for it. Even as I was signing the contract, my my uh, Australian Eurovision fan husband Heath was like, "Do you do you have any ideas?" <laughs> and I said. Not one. Nothing. I have nothing. Uh, this actually touches on a theory of mine that the greatest value an editor really possesses is enthusiasm. Oh, God. Yes. Bringing enthusiasm yeah. to a project for you and going, let's make it happen, rather than worrying about commas and bits of structure and stuff. That's the thing that really gives things life and, and lets them happen. Yeah, let's put on a show. <laughs> it's a great also, thing also Nava rode my ass to get that book in <laughs> uh, like, uh, you know she she got a book out of me in five weeks <laughs> that is uh, a novel out of me in five weeks and that is not easy to do but, so you're, uh, she, you're motivated by harassment that's charming essentially <laughs> much harder than I can tell you um, and I mean she, she's she's a she's a very driven person and she just didn't let me get away with being like 
my cat's dying. <laughs> uh, she just, she, she made sure that it happened, made sure I, I was uh, making progress. And, and that book uh, happened and came out. And I, you know, I remember talking to my agent about it and saying it, it's going long, but I think it's one of the best things I've ever written. And like, I got it. I got to pursue that. And, um, and then like, it's so funny because we'd been talking about it for like a year and mm-hmm. people were like, yeah, that sounds all right. And then somebody, somebody changed the the pitch from Eurovision in space, which is what it had always been, mm-hmm. to Hitchhiker's Guide to yeah. Eurovision. And all of a sudden, everybody was like, oh, oh, oh. Uh, and I was like, cool, because that's no pressure. Uh, <laughs> like, mm, let, 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 I mean, I knew that it was going to get compared, but like, let's just volunteer ourselves for that. That's, that's great. Um, but it, it has, oh, I'm going to not tear up. It has been one of the most as someone who grew up with Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett uh, to be even mentioned in a sentence with their names has been one of the greatest honors of my, my entire career, my stupid jokes about Clippy. (laughs) 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 But, um, but I I, like it it, to, to have, have heard the things that I have gotten to hear because people like that book to, to be a youngish American woman who is allowed to be compared to Douglas Adams and not just stomped on uh, is truly extraordinary. It didn't, it didn't look to me like uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's certainly in the spirit of Douglas Adams. And the other thing about being compared to Douglas Adams these days is you don't know what you're being compared to. You'd be compared to the books, the radio show, the <laughs> yeah. movie, the series. Uh, I, I actually watched the movie uh, not too long ago, uh, and it wasn't as good as I'd remembered. Uh, but mm. but the books were terrific. The radio series was terrific. I mean, I, I remember, and uh, and Pratchett, except for Good Omens, uh, I'm still waiting to see what happens. I mean, it, it, the books the, are there. The, 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 books, the books are there. But the thing is, I guess the thing that it, it certainly is the case with Pratchett and Adams, and it felt this way in Space Opera, that you were just having a whale of a time. You were just having all the fun you wanted to have I, writing a book. I was, although it was also very difficult. I remember... Telling my husband, please do not ever let me say being pregnant and writing space opera. Either of them. (laughs) I know my brain is going to try and make it that way. And I, um, I did have a great time. Like, God, I wrote that first chapter and I was like, I'm really onto something and everyone's going to compare it to Douglas Adams. But if you put British people in space, you you run that risk. Um, Mm. And there was so much of it that I I just had so much fun writing and coming up with infinite, like it's the, my new band name joke just made into a novel. (laughs) So many band names and song names and puns and like actually having to think about sort of the structure of comedy um, in a way I hadn't really done before. But it was also something I had never done before. And I did not know if I was doing okay. I really, when I turned in, what is space opera now? I kind of thought I screwed it up. Like yeah. I, I just, I, by the end of it, I was so wrapped up in my own insecurity about doing something that was so far out of my comfort zone and my wheelhouse. And um, the thing that really saved me uh, was Christopher Priest, actually. <laughs> Yeah. So I was at a convention in France and so was he. Um, and we ended up the three of us drinking together through most of that convention. And, uh, at one point he asked me what I was working on and like a terrible American, I kind of emotionally vomited uh, <laughs> my problems with my current book that I just, I, I just didn't know 
if I sucked at this or I was good at this and I couldn't tell. And like, am, am I, it, it is even the concept of writing a Eurovision novel just stupid? And I, I just didn't know who I was as a writer in the context of this one book. Mm-hmm. And he talked me through it and gave me just this fighting spirit to say, fuck it. It's, it's, it's what I've written and I, I can believe in it and, and people will say what they will. And uh, he really, he like, he gave me the full dad treatment. Uh, <laughs> like he, way to go champ. Uh, <laughs> he, say champ. he would never say champ, but, uh, but yeah, it was actually, I mean, I'll remember it for the rest of my life that, that weekend. Um, he, he was uh, really wonderful to me and really generous with um, his time and uh, like listening to a young writer. he, didn't really know very well at all. Uh, just, you know, sort of lay it all out on the table. And, and um, he, in many ways, really saved uh, saved that. Book. Excellent. He's also a writer who has made a career of his own doing exactly what he wanted, even though mm-hmm. nobody else was doing anything like it. The whole, um, the whole... I think he's brilliant. Yeah, you know, he's, he's wonderful. So is Space Oddity put to bed? Yeah, Space Oddity. Okay. What do we expect? Um, not yet. It is not yet put to bed. Uh, it continues on um, virtually from the moment that um, space opera ends. I do think that it getting delayed by half my family passing on in 2020 uh, ultimately um, kind of benefited it because Eurovision was canceled in 2020, which has never happened. Hmm. And I would never have written about that Hmm. uh, had I turned it in on its original due date. Um, And I, how people react to world altering events, uh, I would not have thought about it in the way I think about it now um, if I had written about it before 2020. So um, it, it, uh, it involves uh, the, the next borderline species found, mm-hmm. borderline sentient species found, which is discovered by none other than Decibel Jones, uh, who is having a, a less amazing time playing Captain Kirk out in the universe than, than uh, he expected. Um, and, uh, I do, I, I, I am, I am also proud of it. It is, it is different, but not that different. You know, mm-hmm. if there's a certain voice to space opera and I found it easier than I thought to sort of slip back into that. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, it's something it really, it would not be the book it is. Have we not all gone through the last year the way we have. Right. And I think that's going to be true of so many books that come out oh, in the yeah. next It'll it'll be ten years before we can look back and figure out the uh, the, the kind of impact. You know, I mean, I was uh, I, I know one of the issues that um, I think I was talking about, but Naomi Kritzer had written her first book just before the Trump election, and then the second book uh, was finished in 2019 after the George Floyd thing, and they're both set in Minneapolis. So she was stuck with, okay, I've now got a near future that didn't isn't the same near future I would have written about six months ago. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, there, I mean, look, writing near, uh, I think it's again, Strauss who said that writing near future science fiction is a fool's game. Like immediately you're screwed. In fact, even in space opera, um, (laughs) NME is a music magazine that's in, that's mentioned in space opera and they closed six months after the book. Like you guys are killing me. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) So what's space opera? Is what a twenty twenty three book? Yeah, I think that's probably what it'll come out. 
Um, so, so given that the past is red is done and is coming out in July and that comfort movie with apples is done and is coming out in October. So that's set. What comes next? Osmo Unknown and the Eight Penny Woods is out in April 2022. Oh, it is what is that? That sounds great. Uh, yeah. It is um, It is a gender-reversed Persephone story, kind of meets Where the Wild Things Are meets Finnish folklore. Uh, I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah uh, so I, basically it's me doing for little boys what Fairyland did for little girls. Excellent. But, well, uh, I guess what we should say is we're at the top of our hour now, and we should let you get on with the rest oh of your God, life. Oh, my God, we're by so fast. Late at night. Uh, I guess I like talking to you guys. <laughs> well, I like talking to you. In fact, I was thinking earlier today, I remember, I remember where we first met, which was Jonathan, in a bank vault. I don't think that I remember. You have just always been there. Bank vault. We were in oh, a bank yeah, vault yeah, having yeah, dinner. In a bank vault, having a d- dinner. I think it was in um, Saratoga Springs, maybe. Yeah, I was, was going to say it was in Saratoga. Yeah. yeah, and we were thrust together on on the corner of this table. We we share a literary agent, as it happened, and he likes to take people out to fancy dinners. Ah, that one I remember. And we were out having a fancy dinner, and there we were, side by side. And if you had told me at that point that we would ever necessarily cross paths again, I would have, would never have been able to guess. So it's yeah. been a very strange kind of a journey in 11 years. It's – oh, gross. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like uh, – You've uh, you've gotten some of my best work out of me, and I, I don't just mean that by asking. You have been a uh, very inspirational well, and uh, and source of, of of new and interesting uh, stories yeah. in my life. And uh, I think that we work very well together. I think we do too. I think the story that you've got you gave me for the next book that's coming out next year, which I'm so proud of it. I'm which so proud. I love, and which <laughs> I would never have. I mean, I, I it's just. I would never anticipate anything like that fitting. I did this book of time travel romance stories. So Kat wrote a story about a girl who fell in love with the space-time continuum. Okay, then. Um, okay. <laughs> that sounds like something that would have, could have appeared in New Worlds in 1967. It sounds like a variety and kind of... I don't think so. I do love it though, and and of course, we, <laughs> you know, we won't get into this. But there is one big thing sitting in the background that we have to come to when the time comes. We will keep circling that for a, a few. What I found, yeah, yeah talking about the editor being enthusiastic, is some things you know you do in ten days, and some things take a few years. Yeah, no, I, I told Jonathan something at a lunch in Dublin. Something I have told other people many times i have made no secret uh that it's a thing i i uh i I have always had an obsession with and you know sometimes all it takes is somebody you respect saying that's a book and you should write it Uh uh to to make something happen yeah and hopefully it will but for the moment Catherine m valenti thank you so much for making time to talk to us it has been an absolute joy thank you so much for having me this was great it's been great talking, and it's it's been great kind of eavesdropping on editors and writers doing their thing. Also, I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah, I, mean, I, I get to see the finished product, except when Jonathan tells me something that I'm not supposed to know, which he's never told me about your work, Kat. It's fine. Um, <laughs> anyway, my thanks again for you, and until the next time, this has been the Code Street Podcast. <laughs>